<laughs> we, uh, we're ready to get started on the transmedia session. Um, as I did, as I did at the, my, my session this morning, I want you to just introduce yourself and tell us what, ex what worries you enough that keeps you up at night or what gets you excited about uh, the new space of transmedia, what, the trends that you're seeing, anything that's driving you at the moment as you introduce yourself. So, Paul, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and we'll go, from, go down. And I guess in one fashion or another have been working in transmedia for no microphone? Or microphone. It sounds like it's working there. Maybe okay. Well. Better? Better. Um, been working in transmedia in one fashion or another for most of the 35 years that uh, I've been involved in comics. I guess what excites me the most about it right now is that the tools that are available are opening whole new realms of storytelling. And particularly for cartoonists and comic book writers and artists, the potential of using our skill sets and art forms to communicate with a wider range of people through some of the new evolving forms of transmedia has been something that's been just a minute away for most of the last decade and seems to be here all of a sudden. And we're trying to figure out how to take advantage of that. Um, I'm Alex uh, Chisholm. I'm a self-proclaimed Jenkins junkie. Uh, <laughs> I've known uh, Henry for almost seven years. Uh, I started working with him when I was getting ready to do some, some fun stuff other than just uh, fundraising and, and research development here at MIT. Um, I've been really interested in transmedia, uh, actually, ever since meeting Henry and, and getting a vocabulary around fan cultures and uh, creative content across channels and a uh, whole variety of things that, that I learned in, uh, in my time here with him and have taken that into um, not only kind of my own independent creative stuff, but also uh, to some of the places uh, in New York, namely a, a major television network called NBC that is right now um, really trying to figure out a whole variety of, of ways of reaching audiences and developing content across channels, um, given in, in a space where there are lots of economic challenges that were touched upon this morning, uh, as well as, uh, to, to a certain extent, kind of discussed around in the user-generated uh, the, the, the user content space. So. Um, Right now, I'm doing really work around heroes in terms of understanding how the fan cultures are, uh, how audiences are interacting with that, as well as kind of how the producers are moving content across various channels. Um, working on some stuff with uh, Olympics and uh, in the news division. And uh, do I have a mic? Oh, wow. Yeah, I do. Uh, I'm Michael Lebowitz. I'm the uh, founder and CEO of Big Spaceship, which is. Uh, we refer to kind of interchangeably either as a digital creative agency or as a convergence agency. Uh, we're based in Brooklyn, New York, and we do uh, a tremendous amount of, I, I guess I should say, I don't exactly know what transmedia is. Um, I'm, we were talking about it uh, at lunch, and I'm not sure these guys know either. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm really interested in talking about it, and uh, nothing really keeps me up at night, uh, but I'm really excited also about the tools, as, as uh, Paul was saying, uh, we get 
we're in the fortunate position of getting to work with a lot of uh, major media properties, a lot of uh, television shows and feature films, and kind of helping our clients, which are these studios and, uh, and owners of content, uh, form new dialogues with the, the consumers they're looking to reach and tell new aspects of stories uh, through all different means. Um, we do everything from uh, sort of experience, interactive experience development to uh, branded game development. Um, and we do it across all digital platforms that make sense. And where the tools start getting really interesting is where they, they start um, having a sort of a crossover potential that leads to a type of convergence that doesn't currently exist. And there's a lot of uses of the word convergence. Um, the one that I'm particularly interested in right now is, is the convergence of, uh, of everything into a digital space, because once it's in a digital space, me and my team of 50 <laughs> mad scientists in Brooklyn can play with it. Um, so we work really closely with companies like Adobe to help them design products that are uh, better for us to make cooler stuff and stuff that's more relevant and starts a better dialogue with people because while we sort of work within a marketing and advertising paradigm, we consider ourselves content creators and entertainers first and foremost. So let's, let's take a few steps back in time. And Paul, you were talking at lunch today a little bit about where some of the things you've been finding out about the origins of transmedia content. And I, I thought maybe we could start there. Okay. Well, I didn't... Per Michael's point, some of it goes to what is transmedia. Um, since I was showing up at an academic conference, I figured I could make a couple of academics do some work for this. So I called a couple of popular culture professor friends. And kicking it around, we at least started with the presumption that if transmedia was taking a creative idea from one medium to another, um, we kind of decided to eliminate religion and mythology, things that you would propagate for non-commercial reasons and restricted to the time since copyright, because the idea was for the person who had some ownership or control of the original form was choosing to take it into a second form, as opposed to you know, the original existed and was wonderful, and somebody else jumps on to profiteer on it. If you work with that kind of definition, in the English tradition, copyright emerges in about 1710. And the earliest example the guys could find was a fellow named Christopher Smart, who created a character called Mary Midnight in a periodical, The Midwife, uh, and then adapted and performed her in a play that was some form of performance art called The Old Woman's Oratory in 1749-1752 period. So way, way back before any of the examples that survived that we remember. In the US, the first example we could find was a novel being turned to a play James Fenimore Cooper's The Spy, which was a historical romance set in New York during the Revolution. And the novel was 1821. The play was 1822. The novel was a bestseller by the standpoint of the time. But if you really think of sort of the line of descent of what I think we would all, in conventional wisdom, start thinking of as transmedia properties, you go back to at least Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with the book in 1818. And I would argue that America's most enduring example of transmedia is Oz, where the book is 1900, becomes a play in 1902 that goes to Broadway in 1909. The first film is 1910. Of course, the film that most of us in the room grew up on is the 1939 version. 
but then you go through the incarnations as the Wiz, starting with a play in 1975, and then Wicked, starting as the book in 1995. Here you start kind of violating the original copyright proprietor line, obviously, but you have people building Troy on top of Troy on top of Troy to get something. And you have over 100 years of creative development layered one layer on top of the other with recognizable origins in Baum's work, um, but transformation as you go. And that, that's sort of the process of transmedia, I think. Yeah, and it's, it's, Baum's a great example because not only does it, is it transmedia, but from the very beginning there were branded properties <laughs> embedded in it. It's just so that we know there's nothing new under the sun. The original Broadway production of, of The Wizard of Oz included a product placement for Budweiser. <laughs> so the, the wizard, who's of course Irish, being in this Emerald City, sings a song, Budweiser was a is a friend of mine, uh, right smack in the middle of the original stage production of Wizard of Oz. Uh, so it's not new to lose our dignity. <laughs> so, so, so the idea that this product, pla that product placement and transmedia go hand in hand, I think, is a very old idea as well. So, given this, uh, what's the fuss now? I mean, those of you, you're, why are we suddenly back talking about transmedia, given that it's been around for so, so very, very long? Actually, can, can I go back and, sure. and start where you disqualified sure. on, in terms of religion, if you think about religion, um, and kind of the stories that emerged around, let's move from Judea into Christianity in mm -hmm. terms of Christ. And you look at the way that um, the Roman emperors and the pagans adopted some of the uh, kind of stories that, that Jesus of Nazareth told and turned those into rituals. You now have a, 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 the start of, of an iconography, a visual sense um, in terms of who Jesus was and who the disciples were. You have things, uh, rituals, uh, that got centered around specific times of the year in terms of the Julian calendar. And then you have, um, through the, the pageant, um, both at the Nativity and in terms of the Stations of the Cross, mm. you, you basically have a play that kind of recreates the mythology or the oral tradition um, long before it was ever documented in a, in a biblical sense. So I, I would say that you start with religion as being um, primarily transmedia to kind of take away the abstraction of what, what's, what the spirituality was that was trying to be communicated. So, and then you, you move that further and the universe further expands and melds such that each generation brings to it a different set of experiences, um, broadens it, takes it, transforms it in much the same way that, that we're talking about Wicked now in terms of violating certain fundamental premises that were established by the law, <laughs> but that become a larger mythology in terms of you'll never look at Alphaba or that Wicked Witch of the West again the same way. Mm -hmm. So. All right. Uh, definitely, I think, a, so to follow up on that then, this question of what, why, why is there now a renewed interest in transmedia? Why do we now hear you know, companies like yours, Michael, that are involved in the transmedia business? Um, well, I think it's, I think it's probably a combination of things. I mean, one is obviously that the the internet has become um, sort of all pervasive, and uh, it is a very, very wonderful and largely inexpensive proving grounds for a lot of different things. Uh, so, it, it, it sort of raises the opportunity for trying out. Um, Transmedia, uh, when you're talking about sort of the, the source material being mainstream media, uh, it, we sort of, I guess the, the, the best way to put it is the evolution was uh, we started out in 
2000 is when we started the company and we started doing uh, destination sites for feature films. And uh, the, the conventional wisdom at that time was that you would put the synopsis and photos of the actors and bios of the <laughs> actors, what we called electronic press kit con content. And uh, our first couple of forays into this, we said, this is really boring. Um, and nobody wants this information. They want the wallpapers because they want to be able to decorate. And that's a whole other session, in a sense. But um, you know, what can we do to sort, of, um, to sort of capture the spirit of this, but then provide some sort of standalone level of, of entertainment and value? And one of the very first uh, things that we worked on was a film called Serendipity uh, with John Cusack uh, and Kate Beckinsale, which uh, is a very cute film uh, about you know having one true love and and sort of fate and chance. And rather than taking, we we kind of struggled with uh, with can we really go and pitch this uh, this sort of different kind of approach to uh, to this movie studio, Miramax at the time, now Weinstein Company. And, and our idea was, was you know, what if you can actually, by traveling through the site and, and, and registering some sort of uh, preference, you, know, you answer a multiple choice question a little differently than somebody else, and we're tracking your path through the site, can we match you up with your soulmate who's traveled that same path um, you know, most recently to you. And, and so at the end of the site experience, you answer five questions. They're all based on themes in the film. All the photography is based in the film. So it was d directly related to it, but it was a very simple and very, very sort of quick execution way for us to expand it beyond. Now, I don't know that the film performed so amazingly well, but the site, we, the end of it was uh, was an experience where you would place your your star on a map. This is where I am, and you would see and you would enter your first name and last initial, and you would see where uh, where your soulmate was, and you would it would say you know John D in in Tulsa, Oklahoma is your soulmate, and that's that's an interesting thing. But then it would bring up all the other stars of everybody else that had ever traveled that path, and you could just click on them, just see the names and. We actually had to go back into it because it was so popular and create a whole new application around it because the stars had to grow to accommodate the number of names of people. We had a million people go through and do this. They were, they were fat. They would go through over and over answering differently. And that's, that's kind of when we realized that we were onto something with this. And it was simultaneously an opportunity for other studios to see that there's, there's something viable here in, in creating its own kind of narrative that's a little bit more in keeping with the medium that we were working with. So. I don't know if that's a, the right answer, but that's sort of the seed for us. Yeah, I think another piece of the answer, which picks up somewhere on where, where the first session was this morning, is the disappearance of old norms for advertising. Uh, there's a term you never hear anymore in advertising that used to be a commonplace when I was a kid, which was a roadblock. You could simply, as an advertiser, by the same exact time on the three networks, and essentially 100% of America would hear your message. This don't work so good no more. <laughs> um, so if you're an advertiser and you're searching for a means of getting a large audience, you can either build it out of some very big building blocks on the network, but not nearly as big as those blocks used to be. And, and you still have to now put it together out of 30, 40 different blocks. Or you can start saying, well, I can break away from the tyranny of the 30-second message and find some of these cool new creative things that people seem to be responding to and do something as a compound. Uh, we had a meeting at uh, Time Warner a couple of days ago 
um, with some of the key advertisers, and they were showing off some of the projects they were proud of. And many of them were built on combinations of the two. We got a message out with a 30-second piece, and we found this transmedia piece. So it has become a mantra for the guys who are, by and large, paying the bills of the media. They don't quite know how to value it. I mean, all the questions that were raised this morning, they don't know what they should be spending on it or how it works or what's actually selling some product. But it's really cool, and you get a lot of press, and the press is worth something, too, because if people are talking about what you're doing, you don't have to pay them to talk about it. So if you can run this transmedia thing, and nobody turns in but reporters, but the reporters then put it on the Today Show the next day, wow, you reach a lot of people that way. So it's, you have a, both a failure state on the one end of an old model at its extreme case, and you have a curiosity state about the new model. And we're somewhere in between both and exploiting it before, before we get to a real new model. You definitely see a lot of uh, experimentation just in the requests that we're getting for work. You also see a lot of, of outright copying requests. I mean, every week we get asked, do we want to make YouTube but only for our brand? <laughs> We get that request literally weekly. I mean, that's, uh, and, you know, that's, that's the sort of ugly underbelly of this. So Alex, you've been looking at Heroes, which is one of the bigger successes this season uh, in terms of trans, transmedia. What, can you give us some sense of how they're beginning to take advantage? Yeah, it's interesting because the Heroes on, you know, when you, when, at the upfronts last May, when, when you went and you saw, uh, basically NBC starts Monday and then uh, I think uh, ABC goes Tuesday, CBS goes Wednesday, and Fox closes it on Thursday. By the end of the week, you're just like, you're numb because you've seen all of this new content. And, um, and then you get the DVDs and you get to, to, to go back and revisit it. But I, I remember um, seeing the clip that they showed for Heroes and just going, wow. Just they, they completely got it in the clip in terms of, I think, what they were trying to achieve between two different genres in terms of the filming and the storytelling as well as the back end 10 minutes later and talking about how this was going to work as a digital comic book um, and how they were going to have these graphic novels, you know, whether you call them comic books or graphic novels, they were going to have these online each week and that they were going to kind of feed the audience that way. And so it was, um, you know, right off the bat said that's the one um, with some, some friends and in terms of picking a research project this year, we came down to, to three of the new shows that were, were potentially going up, and we decided to, to settle on this one, and lucky us, um, <laughs> because it's really, it's turned out, you know, it, in terms of what NBC Studios does, and I have nothing to do with the production, so I, I have no, no vested interest here, um, but in terms of what NBC Studios has done, um, the folks out in Burbank, um, and I think um, it was uh, Betsy this morning who talked about kind of the programming strategy in terms of aggregating audiences night per night and how you kind of use those to promo the next set of programs or the next day's programs or later in the day's programs. Um, the thing about Heroes is that they had a, a marketing team outside of the traditional programming block structure to think about how to market this particular property. And because they had spent so much time, Tim Kring and Jeff Loeb had spent so much time kind of thinking about the concept and bringing the team of writers together. Um, and what this really wanted, they wanted it to be a universe. They, want, they looked at the fuselage, they looked in relation to Lost. Um, they looked at a, a whole variety of the ingredients there and tried to 
understand what that alchemy was. And that fed everything afterwards in terms of the content production, in terms of how they reached out to audiences, how they supported the audience, and, and has it been a perfect execution? By, by no means. <laughs> by no means. It's, um, in fact, if you were a fan and you went to the NBC.com slash hero site um, right after the launch of the show, you were hungry because things that were part of the navigation were not there yet. Um, it, just, <laughs> it, it, it went to the, this issue of primary television, that's the business model, that's the investment, and then the subcontracts and bringing all this other content into the universe that they, they were trying to build. So now it's reached a critical mass. I mean, there's, there's now enough of the community and this tension between the, what the creators are creating in terms of kind of the vision, in terms of the, the supplemental materials, as well as what the fans are bringing and the discussions that are happening now in the three major uh, areas where this is being discussed, ninthwonders.com, the television without pity, and then the site itself at NBC. Um, and then, uh, you know, to the, to the way they're, they're kind of building into now the, the traditional, or the, the, le the, the more traditional now <laughs> iTunes and, um, and digital downloads in terms of being able to layer this now all in the, to your point about make everything digital and let me play with it, that's all beginning to kind of work together. So as they head into these last couple of weeks before the holiday hiatus, um, they've really done a good job in terms of building audience. And if you look at the Nielsen numbers on it, they're fairly steady at, at a height that other shows right now are not, not realizing. So that's, that's it's, it's the win uh, so far this season. So I'm, it certainly helps, I suspect, that super, the Heroes is a superhero genre. Because as I, me we mentioned, I mentioned in my talk this morning, superheroes from the very beginning have explored uh, the transmedia potential. Superman was in four or five media within the first five years of his, of his existence. So I'm wondering what, what it is about that particular genre that has lent itself so well to transmedia strategies through the years. Like obviously this is a question to start with Paul, but I think some of the others will have things to say about it as well. Well, the genre clearly works in multiple media, which, which not all forms of entertainment do. Specific characters, though, relatively rarely become enduring successful transmedia. God knows how many superheroes there have been over the years. But Superman and Batman really are the extraordinary examples of transmedia success. A um, couple of different ways I'd like to answer this question. One is that the greatest success for superheroes historically has not been as simultaneous transmedia, which is the modern vogue, but sequential. Because you really look at these characters back historically, and you can say that Superman, for instance, peaks very separately as a TV property and as a film property. Um, he's been exposed in virtually every form, and those have always been reinforcing the character and building it. But the great peaks have been as a national fad or a national focus of attention came very separately for television and film. Very much so the same thing for Batman, where the 1960s application on television riveted the entire country. There were many other executions, including a fairly mediocre and only minimally successful film tied to the TV show. Um, and then the 1980s films were, again, a national phenomenon with only some very secondary television relevant at that time. 
so that simultaneity isn't necessarily the issue. And in each case, they have to very much be adapted to the host media they're going into. The reason I think that comics characters often can be successful for transmedia is they're very frequently built on structures that fundamentally allow for expansive storytelling rather than restricted storytelling. By that, I mean they have rich backstories that can be exploited. They have relatively open environments that allow for future enrichment. It's not key to the story that it take place in a very defined, single, narrow space. They have open-ended missions rather than closed quests. If you think about Batman versus the Fugitive, there's a limit to where you get with the Fugitive. The decision was made early on on Batman that who killed his parents didn't matter very much. Um, he needed to put him away, but nobody remembers the guy's name particularly. What, matter, what mattered was that he was out to eradicate evil. That's a pretty long-term job. <laughs> um, <laughs> hope you can explain that to George Bush. <laughs> I'm really hoping that for George, it's not going to be his job that much longer. <laughs> um, sorry. And the political uh, interlude. <laughs> behind the curtain, though, I think it's also equally important that these were properties that multiple creative leaders could get. One of the things that makes things work for transmedia and survive is that it isn't all in one person's head. Because some properties that are extraordinarily special and wonderful and peculiar to what they are, we can all appreciate, but very hard to find the next guy to work on. And it was very important to the long-term success of a lot of the great comic properties that you could have the Batman TV show of the 60s, which was driven by those guys, and then you could have Tim Burton's Batman, and then you could have Chris Nolan's Batman, and you know, let's not even talk about Bob Kane and, and the beginnings in the comics. The, for whatever set of reasons, the essence was transferable from one creative leader to another. Um, many properties either lack that intrinsic quality or have creative ownership or leadership structures that don't permit it to happen and that destroys them for transmedia. They had visual dimensions which can be represented different ways without losing recognition or affiliation. I think comics benefited there enormously from the fact that the characters were given birth as fairly raw iconography. Um, so that when you had Michael Keaton playing Batman, it didn't seem that outrageous as it might be if you had first met Batman being played by Michael Keaton and your first image was that, and then you came in and introduced Christian Bale is now Batman. <laughs> but they're both reflections somehow of this drawn image which exists in your head but has a lot of room for interpretation. So it's, I would argue comics is almost a uniquely um, potentially powerful medium to move from in almost McLuhanist terms. Um, and additionally, these properties share that they're built on strong sort of wish fulfillment fantasies. What would I do if? You know, what would it be if the girl, my Lois Lane, really realized that I'm not a Schlubby Clark Kent, but I'm really Superman? What would I do if, if could I be the Batman? Could I work that hard to, to do that and accomplish it? These are very primal sorts of fantasies. And per the argument that it's comics, not just superheroes, 
Um, coming off that, I'd argue another one of the wish fulfillment ones for, that came from comics to create a powerful, enduring transmedia character would be Uncle Scrooge. Um, what would I do if I had all the money there was to play with? And here's a character who, again, emerged as the drawn image. In his case, hasn't been a live action thing, thank God. Um, <laughs> but has gone through many, many different media for Disney, um, taking that fantasy through the different incarnations. Anyone else want to jump in on that? Yeah, I think, and, and it's interesting, you start in the comic space, which is really kind of, you know, we talk about the traditional comic audience or reader. And then the thing that, that in terms of some, some guesses on why it's been moving, the superheroes have been moving out of, out of comic books into the mass um, kind of communication uh, channels m really at an accelerated pace over the last few years, if you think about Spider-Man, Batman, um, X-Men for sure, is uh, you know, post 9-11. This whole issue of heroes, the whole issue of um, you know, good versus evil, the mythologies that we see in our politics, in our, in our social policy, um, feeling safe at home, and yet there's this kind of alternate universe where problems can be addressed or, or solved and, and, uh, and evil can be uh, overcome. And I think that if you look at uh, the first Spider-Man appeared in, in May of 2002, the first trailers um, were starting to appear in the fall of 2001. In fact, Sony actually had a, a, a spot that had the spider web between the two twin towers and they had to destroy basically that trailer. Mm -hmm. It came and then X-Men and at the same time Smallville starting. So there's this like rise in the number of of, of these shows and, and movies kind of coming to bear in the culture in the last four or five years as we've struggled with a national identity in terms of our place in, in championing good versus evil. So I think that there's, there's not only kind of the support for all of the good, good things that you've talked about in terms of the backstory and what these characters allow us to do in terms of our imagining ourselves into these, um, into these universes or these roles, but on the flip side, it's given us a space to deal with and talk through and have a vocabulary for kind of what's really happening kind of you know outside of the entertainment space. So I'd say I'd argue that that at one level is is part of what's made this so such a phenomenally rich explosion of, of creative content across these channels in the last few years for sure. I'd, I'd just say also that that uh, sort of outside of so anything really specific to comics, that, that fan culture, and we've talked about this a little bit, but fan culture has become much more mainstream in general. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing where, where one begins and another one uh, ends. But, but uh, you know, the, what the boom of the internet has achieved is, is uh, an explosion of niches and, and niches becoming mainstream in a sense. And I think that, that sort of, uh, the the common identity of you know the comic book fan you know the the misconception in my view mm -hmm. but maybe not um, <laughs> is is you know is breaking down to a certain extent uh, the same way that people are starting to realize that you know there are video games that are played by people other than you know seventeen year old boys and uh, and great quantities online you know the, the the massive majority of game playing online is casual games for middle aged women. Um, by a 60% margin or something like that. So it's just sort of opening new re re realizations, partly due to you know the 
the networking of information, partly due to the new level of, of research that's possible into these groups rather than just sort of the Nielsen level, like big blockbuster level research. And I think that that, that sort of feeds back into this a little bit. So next round, I'll start with, with Michael. You've worked in a number of different media genres uh, in terms of doing web extensions. Beyond the superhero genre, are there others that are especially good or, or lend themselves to transmedia? Or is this a strategy that works pretty much throughout regard to the original content? Um, yes and I mean yes and no. It's it's really really hard to do certain things. Um, you know, like I said, we work on digital platforms. We're doing you know screens about this size. Um, you know, it's really hard to. It's not impossible. But it's really difficult to achieve a sense of giant Hollywood blockbuster level scope when somebody's sitting this close to their screen looking at it and you know <laughs> they've got their tinny little speaker on but not good headphones and you, you have to make a sort of a lot of assumptions to get there. So that doesn't it, make it as easy. An, an intimate experience, um, we've had a lot of success doing horror online because it is this moment where you're very intimate experience with your screen. I've had lots of people tell us that we've scared the shit out of them and that's a, that's a great success and something I'm very proud of. You know, <laughs> you're sitting alone in the dark looking at some of our work right. and, and you know your phone rings or something and you jump, then we're, we're creating a mood that, that, that is successful. And you know, um, so I think you know, horror as, as a genre is one that, that we've had a lot, or horror and thriller or suspense, we've had a lot of success with. Um, Comedy is obviously the, the driving force. I said this at lunch. I think the driving force of YouTube, um, you know, it, it's something that works really well in short form. Uh, it's really easy to, you know, watch a piece of something and laugh uh, by yourself. <laughs> I, I just got a video iPod. I was out in, in uh, Cupertino for the first time and got my video iPod at the Apple employee store and was very excited. And I watched the World of Warcraft episode of South Park for the first time because I just missed it. And I, I'm sitting on the bus going from Bed-Stuy into Dumbo on my morning commute laughing by myself. And I looked around at one point, like, I must look like a complete moron. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. But you know, it works. Comedy really works sort of small screen. So in that sense, yeah. But I think, you know, we're just barely scratching the surface of what's possible to do. And I think when you start getting into you know, the difference between the transmedia, the sort of historical transmedia that you're talking about, and some of the things that, that we've seen starting to happen, some of the stuff we've done with Lost, for, for, for example, um, where, it's not, where it is actually running concurrent or close to concurrent, it gets more interesting because you can achieve one emotion with one medium and another emotion mm -hmm. with another medium. And they actually overlay really nicely. So a cell phone is not a really great way to experience scope, but it is a really great way to interact with another aspect of a, so a story. And so you know, starting with what's the world we're in, what's the story we want to tell, and then figuring out how the technology kind of feeds that appropriately is how we do it. Well, to pick up on the phrase world, which you, you, you used there, I often quote a screenwriter that I talked to who said, when I started out, we pitched stories because here they're a good story to make a good movie. And then he said, we pitch characters because you needed a good character to support a franchise. And he says, now we pitch worlds because you need a world to support a transmedia entertainment property. So this concept of world building uh, seems absolutely central to what we're talking about here. And can you, can you speak to the shift toward thinking of a property not as a story, but as a world that goes into this? That all is good. Um, it. Yeah, I guess <laughs> I built a few worlds in my time. Um, I think the first thing is that com complexity is now an acceptable public virtue. 
in storytelling, which it wasn't. And this is one of the cases where we won, the people in this room. <laughs> um, if you think about the way Lord of the Rings had to be marketed in its original book publication, where it was put out as a trilogy, not because Tolkien wanted it to, but because, oh my God, if we make this one book, who will ever be willing to buy it? Um, and everything had to be done to camouflage the complexity of the work. At the same time, if you look, I'm not a, I'm not a TV historian, but I, I would suspect you can look back to Roots as probably, arguably, the turning point there, where for the first time you, you really go from marketing television as you know, turn on the dial and you will watch something that we guarantee you won't ever have had to have seen an episode of before to understand or to value, but you're going to, at least in America, you're now going to want to sit riveted day after day to see something for its cumulative value. You saw Hill Street a couple of years later bring that into the conventional weekly uh, storytelling where suddenly that ABCD formula that was talked about this morning became socially acceptable. If you had talked about that with among writers a year or two before Hill Street, they would have yelled you out of the room. <laughs> um, there's a volume on writing comics that we published with Watson Guptill a couple of years ago where the guy who put the book together took my ABCD structure that I used to use for writing Legion of Superheroes and devoted a few pages to it as a paradigm because it was still at that point a secret. And it's not like I had developed it or been the first guy. I had just sort of reverse engineered it out of other people's work. But now it's a commonplace of discussion among the public, never mind the professionals where it used to be a secret. Um, the second is that access to material raises the stakes. Um, what I mean by the fact that is that in a world where there are all these multiplicity of things available, the stronger material, the more fully built world, can crowd out the imitations. When you only had three channels going and you only had a choice of three programs to watch and you had relatively fewer other entertainment options, thinner you didn't have superstores for books, you had you know, a paperback rack that you could look at with a few choices, there was room for the 47th imitation Lord of the Rings property to be relatively successful because you couldn't easily get the real thing. Um, now, even if, the real, even if you were willing to settle for the Rankin-Bass version as the real thing, um, you couldn't get it because it wasn't available. Now you have sort of perpetual availability of the best version of a genre. Well, you better build that world pretty damn well if it can, has at least the potential to push out all the other guys. You can't just walk in and say, you know, the, my book's, my movie's going to be Lord of the Rings meets Lord of the Flies. <laughs> not sure how that one works. Um, I think it's the aforementioned Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I think also it's very distinctive that you heard that story from a screenwriter because I think in particular for film, we're living in a time where there's a change in the experience of theater going. And as Michael said, he can't build the epic programming for the small screen. You really can't even build it for television screen yet. 
closer than you used to be, but, but you, there are sets of things you can't do in Heroes that you can do in an X-Men movie or a Justice League movie. Mm -hmm. um, so it becomes much more important for the screenwriter to make his case to the studio. I want you to spend $200 million making this world. I've really thought out why it's awesome and why I need $200 million to build it. Um, that's a different conversation than you have in doing a comic book or doing a book proposal or doing internet programming. The, uh, in terms of world creation and, and marrying it back to the, the previous question on, on genres that are working, um, one of Henry's students, Sam Ford, is actually doing uh, his master's thesis on soaps, daytime drama. Hmm. We saw the, um, in terms of world creation and the worlds that exist and things like As the World Turns or uh, Young and the Restless, I mean, huge archives of, of content, um, characters. You saw the, the, uh, the book that Henry flashed up this morning, Oakdale Confidential, mm -hmm. as it relates to the As the World Turns. So that's one, and the fan communities around those are... Um, very committed and very involved. So you've got this really interesting ecosystem that uh, is both the world of the, the content as well as the viewer that's uh, kind of going back and forth and, and pushing and pulling. The other one is the, the and, and Henry had shared with a bunch of uh, folks recently a, an essay on sports, um, and that sports in, in transmedia has absolutely exploded. If you look at not only the success of the Madden series, but um, fantasy sports leagues, you know, every network has one. There's something tied to whether it's a March Madness thing at CBS or uh, an NFL pool at, at either ESPN or, or NBC um, or even on the actual uh, league sites themselves. The world there is it used to be that you'd watch a game, a contest each week, and that was it. It was like the, the conversation over the course of the week was relative to, did you see what Joe Montana did, the, the Hail Mary pass? Um, and, and it's now become this, this economy where statistics are the, the currency of the economy mm -hmm. over the course of a week. So the world, which is based in the, the actual contest, then fuels a whole cascade of other contests that are based exclusively on the statistics that emerged following the previous weekends, or the previous set of <laughs> contests, yeah. contest. So in terms of this world and this genre, it's, it's, it's unbelievable to think about the information management, like information as play, the way it is in the fantasy sports domain. And it's moving across, and so much so that you now have cross push and pull between the television and what's happening online, both with the communities and the supplementary content. And then, um, you know, the last bit of it is I talked about the, the Madden thing. I mean, one of the things that um, NBC has, has, has been confronting is the challenge of how you make the Olympic movement and the Olympics relevant to new audiences. And this whole issue of, of gaming and bringing gaming in and allowing, um, allowing viewers and kind of the rest of us to participate in these just world-class competitions. So that's kind of shifted their thinking in terms of how you engage viewers across platforms in these competitions as, as fantasy and as actual play. Um, you know, as, as the telecast, as Sasha Cohen is skating, what am I doing online to compete in, in this world, world event? And so if you look at what's ahead in Beijing, and certainly you know, the, the, the level of competition and the cultural issues that uh, the cultural opportunities um, there are just really fascinating. And I think a lot of what you're saying, I mean, when, when you play, I play fantasy basketball religiously, um, and, and I develop 
uh, I identify with the, the, the players on my team. I'm a yeah. Knicks fan, sadly, um, in, in, in real life. But, uh, but on my fantasy team, I've got Gilbert Arenas, and I'm really, really big on Gilbert Arenas now. And, and, and so it's, it, while, while, the, while the sort of the, the commerce that's going on or the, the, you know, the currency, like you said, is the data, there is like a personal identification yeah. that goes on. And, and I relate that, going back to the sort of concept of worlds, to in a sense, the the world of video games, you know, that you identify with being somebody. It's 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 the act of of living your fantasy in in some limited way. I I was born tall, but I was never going to be an NBA player. I love to have this team and have some sort of control over who's playing when and 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 sort of identifying with it. I also you know love comic books and would love to play as you know Batman or you know we've done a, a number of games for Marvel properties. No offense and. Uh, <laughs> You know, and uh, you know, it's it's a great kick to to get a chance to play that, and that's that's sort of where where a world already exists, and you're just sort of adding a little piece to it, or you're expanding it, so that you're kind of backing into having a world in a sense. But I think that that's sort of again the mainstreaming of video games um, kind of opens up people to that potential, maybe. Well, the three of you on the panel are clearly people who get it, who understand the economic and aesthetic value of transmedia storytelling. Yeah, clearly, across the industries you're working with, there are plenty of people who don't get it, who are, who are facing <laughs> different economic resistances and conceptual resistances to this concept. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to the resistance to transmedia, where it's coming from, what some of the blockages are uh, that you're encountering as you think about this work. Well, Betsy, I mean, Betsy hit on it this morning, this issue with guilds. Like, creating content, and it, which is why I think it was interesting that you had the future of television panel first, then you had user-generated content, because this transmedia really is like at the intersection of these two things, because um, to the extent that you can create 99% of the, the story and you have the additional 1% being layered in by other users, um, the economics of, of creating a property like Heroes across multiple channels or, or even a loss, I mean, the fuselage, as Ivan will uh, talk about, if you ask him, is, is the fuselage really became this kind of separate thing that the, um, the writers and the producers really started participating in. And it, it bolstered it both ways, both from the, the network and the studio side as well as in what the fans and the community were bringing to it. So it, it kind of established this, this model for how it might work. But it is, it is hellaciously expensive given the guilds and the unions to, to push this stuff because um, for exactly what Betsy was talking about this morning at Betsy and Mark, this issue of um, you know everybody wanting a piece of the pie and, and however kind of it gets monetized. And right now the reality is is it not we don't know how to monetize all of it. We know how to monetize some of it in terms of clicks and sponsorship and advertising. But in terms of the, again understanding the full dynamic of the the ecosystem, it's not it's not fixed yet, which is why you've got lots of interesting experimentation. And you have shows that want to be transmedia and that are begging for it, but the content isn't there yet because the budgets aren't to make it, make it work. So, Yeah, I mean, I think you know, you're coming from, from the production side of things. I come because the people who hire me are the, the marketing side of things. And I, sometimes the money for these things comes sort of, it's, it's, it, it's hidden as a marketing cost or it's, but the other, a lot of times also it's, uh, it's us really struggling to say this is effective marketing and in the sort of older conception of what marketing and advertising is, 
you know, that you create spots and you, you know, pr promote a single call to action and, and it's all pretty boring, um, in my opinion, uh, is, is kind of dead, especially in the medium that we work in. And so we have, our challenges are struggling with, with um, and I don't want to put all the blame on marketing executives at all. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, very active um, creators of content who, you know, I've struggled with filmmakers and they look at everything from I have, I have total control. I'm the director. I choose what shot. I choose what angle. I choose what character. I choose what dialogue line. Why the hell would I turn anything over to you guys to play with in your studio in Brooklyn? I don't know from you. It's a silo. And, the uh -huh. silo issue. Yeah. And, and so there's, there's, there's fear on that side. In some cases, you know, obviously there's lots of people who are very forward-thinking and open to it. And I think on the marketing side, there's, you know, this is what I've done before, and so, you know, what 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 compelling argument can you give to do something that's that's more of a brand extension or you know a world extension or or whatever it might be? And and that's that's a cell that goes through in some cases better than others. With with Lost, which we worked on, you know, we talked to ABC. They had lost they we we came into the picture um, about you know towards the end of the first season and they had this sort of runaway hit and uh, you're smirking over there I see you <laughs> and, uh, and Ivan is the lost expert if you yes. want to talk to him yes um, and they they gave us a really interesting challenge but they didn't really uh, have in mind sort of they wanted in a sense to bring some content to the fans that were going to be um, very disappointed that they had a summer off, and sort of so it was sort of off-season programming on some level. But then they also needed a tool, just an information tool for wow. If you start lost on episode three, you are lost, <laughs> and then there's no two ways about it. And and so, a lot of times we're finding that that we have to struggle to create things. Uh, and, and also sell them through to clients, whoever they might be, creators and clients, that, that serve so many different roles in the process that they're, they're, uh, that they're almost inevitably going to displease somebody. Um, you know, that you're going to, well, we really need to carry the storyline across here, and we really need to fill in these newbies over here, and, and it's sort of asking it to do a little bit too much and still have this, this you know, uh, corporate ecosystem, you know, smile and happy and, and willing to sign their checks. Without, di without disputing, because I agree with all of what's been raised and could add some nuances, but I, I won't. Let me try and answer it from a different direction. One of the other very large problems you've got is that creative worlds do not spring like Athena full-blown out and most things are not created the way Tolkien did the Lord of the Rings where he built the languages along with the rough drafts and then went back and ripped it up particularly when we're talking television perhaps at the most extreme case nothing of heroes existed prior to about a year a year ago today this is about the time of year where the guys put together a five or six page Bible to follow up on you know, a two-paragraph pitch that they <laughs> walked in on. Um, and not only do we have no economic model for sort of how everybody ought to participate, but we don't have the creative model for most of these. The, the creator, let's assume he's one of the enlightened directors or enlightened showrunners or whatever it is, he's doing his day job. 
And his day job is to get a group of people together on a set to make a TV show or make a film. All of a sudden, you're asking him to run essentially a vir virtual creative process where some of it's going to be done by Michael in Brooklyn, and some of it's going to be done by somebody in Afghanistan, and some of it's <laughs> going to be done over here. And it's all got to come together, and it's running at the same time as he's just trying to have the damn script ready for Friday for a table read. Um, and yet, it doesn't make sense for him to say, Michael, you can invent what I don't yet know about my characters, because really, I'm driving the bus, and you're going to care about the story if my gut instinct is there. I got a little scribble piece of paper in the back of my head that says, I think this character is going to turn out to like Oreos. But because he reminds me of a guy I once knew who had many characteristics, including liking Oreos. But I haven't had a chance to write that down. And you're going to have him like Vienna fingers. I know. That's you know? True. You're just, That's true. It's not because you're bad or stupid. It's because I haven't had a chance to tell you yet. And I haven't, I haven't thought all that through and gotten that out of my head. And we, we don't, on the one hand, want to slow all the processes down and create everything as slowly as Lord of the Rings was created, because it doesn't work either. Very few people can put those years in. Neither the economic nor the creative model works for that. Most of us will have forgotten so much about what we're creating if we put that many years in. Um, but we need to create a generation of people. And that's where I think your user-generated content comments come really to the fore. When the kids who are now 20 are 35 and 40 and are driving these shows, they will have grown up in a world where they're used to everybody adding one on to the other. Mm -hmm. um, the creators who are now driving most of these processes learn their process of creation as what you aspire to is more and more control. Mm -hmm. That's how you win. You know, Jeff Loeb goes from being one of six or seven guys writing a comic book series to being one of five or six guys in a room working on all the different episodes of a TV show like Smallville to being one of the two guys crafting all of Heroes to maybe next time he gets to be the guy. Um, that's the path he understands. Because he's done the comics work, which is much more virtual than the television work, he's kind of got one foot in the other piece and some understanding of it. But most of the guys don't. And it goes against what we like to do. We like to make. These are our toys. We're making these characters up. You're going to make up a part of my character, and then I'm going to have to use that back? Ugh. Or even in, even in the exchange between creators in different channels, there's another role in this equation, and that's the executive, the network executive, um, which is a very powerful role. <laughs> um, Th those, uh, a couple people here I know saw the Heroes extended pilot at Comic-Con. And in, for those of us who saw it, there's a hiccup in our universe because um, there's an insinuation there that um, part of the challenge is related to Muslim extremists. And it's not something that has, it, it's, it's clearly been stripped from the broadcast narrative. Mm. And one can only wonder why it was stripped from the broadcast <laughs> narrative. Um, but it is, it is three scenes that are pivotal, I think, in the extended version of the pilot that, that was um, that's shown at Comic-Con and that, that eventually ended up on BitTorrent if you've seen it. Um, but you know, the, there is the, the reality of the executive in terms of not knowing where mm -hmm. the show or the content is going from the creator 
or the ancillary or you know, kind of complementary content, but there's the guy in the middle saying, not going to do well with audiences, got to change it. So, which is what's which is what's happened in the eight weeks we've seen it. So, mm -hmm. it's funny the the way you were describing the the sort of auteur, you know, focus of things because it runs completely in the face of how my company's organized. Mm -hmm. You know, that we have all these disciplines represented in the company from strategy and production, design, animation, three D, sound design, everything that makes stuff, and. And the whole idea is total collaboration, that all of those disciplines are, are, are represented in a sort of 360 way through the entire lifespan of everything that we do because we need them to be talking off of each other, because it's a multimedia world, and we need all those perspectives in order to do our jobs correctly. Mm -hmm. And I, I never really thought about it before, but it, it really is, it's almost sort of a, a diametric opposite, that, yeah. that everybody gets a voice in our creative meetings. And my voice isn't even loudest as much as I would like it to be sometimes. And uh, you know, the interns speak up and they've got great ideas and those actually make their way in. And, and this will get solved in a new synthesis because different groups of creative people work differently in different evolutions. And as this opportunity becomes larger, it will be natural so that when you start the show, before, before your team comes in now, dragged in by the marketing after the pilot episode has been filmed, the show's been picked up, probably what will end up happening if this paradigm succeeds is the writing team will include somebody who's done some of this who will be the designated liaison to that part of the area, and he'll start filling in those gaps immediately. goes back to your screenwriter story. They're asking me to pitch a world now. Well, I don't need to pitch a world. I just need to pitch the story for the movie. Oh, maybe I do need to pitch the world, because if I haven't thought all that out, I'm not going to like all of what's going to happen over here. And we'll figure out mechanisms for this, but we're just not not only not uniformly there, we're not frequently there right. yet. Well, I, definitely infrequently. But it, it, what, one thing that I have seen th that's, that's changing somewhat is we are getting approached by the production companies during production or before production, uh, rather than only being approached by the studios or the, the networks um, sort of post-production or as the production's wrapping up um, to sort of get the word out there. And mm -hmm. it's not a huge shift, but it, it's a noticeable shift that that's happening. And, and I think one of the things that, that may happen and that might be interesting is that the, uh, the production companies come to us and, and say, we want you to, to help us build this out, and we're going to get that big aggregator, you know, broadcast network or movie studio to pay for it all. Mm -hmm. um, because they are getting more and more sort of power in, you know, how in the, that definition up front, because they're, they're being challenged to come with a world, a fully realized idea, not just a story idea, then they, once they've come with it, they want to actually make it happen. And so they want to approach it from a sort of earlier in the production timeline. So to pick up on another fraction you haven't talked about, it's from the audience point of view, right? You want to build this transmedia content over here that allows me as a fan to drill down deeply and get a more immersed in this world. On the other hand, on here, on the television show, I'm just a viewer, Joe Sixpack, who wants to watch the show. Everything you've moved over here is now a gap or hole over here. How do, how do, how do we balance those two urges? That is, uh, yeah, that's the biggest challenge in doing what we do. With, with the biggest success I think we had with it was doing the, we did the whole worldwide campaign for the, the film of the Da Vinci Code. And um, uh, I can sort of run a little, am I on? You're on. I'm on. Uh, I'll run a little 
thing in the background right here um, while I do it, but it's, um, it had the broadest possible audience for a film. Um, it, it, you know, it was, it's a, obviously a massive uh, success as a book, the most successful book of its time. Um, but when they came to us, they said, this has got a very, very broad audience. And now, this is sort of traditional marketing in some sense, but what we were doing is, is trying to struggle with two different audiences, the, the, the equivalent of the Joe Sixpack audience that you're talking about, which is somebody who wants to know, uh, well, what's the deal with Tom Hanks in this movie? Um, and, you know, or perhaps, you know, uh, somebody who comes to it through the book and is really more interested not in having an experience, but in, in just learning sort of what's the deal in the translation of this to, from book to film. Um, and so we had to put a lot of thought into what the, the navigation structure of this was going to be, this experience. So along the top, which you can see right here, you've got characters, games, news, Da Vinci Gallery, really sort of basic hierarchical things. You have kind of one-touch access to any of the, the fundamental content you might want to have. But then we, we created a, a sort of secondary level of it for people who are ready to and who wanted to engage in an experience. There were dozens and dozens of rabbit holes to fall down. So every page of standard content, you could peel it back and find mirror writing on it. Or uh, we built a whole system of codes that you see in this tray at the bottom of the screen here uh, on some of these shots where uh, when you peeled the page back on some, there would be a code there. And if you type that into your code tray, it would play a vignette of sort of additional content and plot points from the film that we'd put together from the assets that we had. Um, and th there, was, there were literally dozens and dozens of things to discover if you wanted to, but there was nothing sort of precluding anyone from just getting the basic information. Um, that, that only kind of half answers your question because when you get into Lost, which is more of a persistent world, I mean, this is still a marketing campaign, um, you know, we 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 put our we dipped our toe in the water of that very carefully. We started out with uh, with the uh, Oceanic Air site, which was the, the the site for the airline where the crash and uh, lost happened, and and we very consciously buried uh, little Easter eggs to be discovered in it at very very different depths because we wanted to see how far people were willing to go to get there. And what we discovered is no matter how deep we put them, people found them instantly. <laughs> um, and they were incredibly, incredibly active fans. And so we kept burying them deeper and deeper. But then, you know, it, it does get funny because we, we at, thought, at first we thought we were going to be working much more closely with the production and with the writers. And I think they were busy doing their day jobs, um, as you said. And so we were kind of left on our own to do this stuff. So not that much of it made its way back to the show necessarily, but it was definitely part of the dialogue because the boards, which were also part of our Oceanic Flight 815 site, were where everything was discussed, where people posted, you know, maps uh, for how to discover, you know, every single thing that we had buried everywhere across <laughs> the three sites that we did, um, and we actually even at one point entered the story ourselves, which is just just a, a, a not sort of exactly relevant to this, but just an interesting point about how this stuff starts to play out is uh, we when we arranged the hosting. Uh, our account was called Big Spaceship because that's the name of the purchaser of the hosting service. And some fan searching for whatever they could find added a, the secure link, the HTTPS, to the URL of the server. And they had designated that page. The hosting company had designated that page Big Spaceship 1 because that was the Big Spaceship server number <laughs> one. So that goes out on the wire. <laughs> and suddenly, it's a space story, they're aliens, <laughs> all of these theories. And then from there, you know, somebody, some 
crazy, lovely person uh, in, in California registered BigSpaceShipOne.com and started putting up sort of strange <laughs> but and vaguely relevant content, just a new thing every day. And we're, wonder, we're in the middle of all this thing. What the hell do we do now? Like, they're violating our copyright. Like, well, let's just let them do it. And, and, you know, there were all these posts about how we were a multinational corporation and, and you know, we have incredible power over the media and this and that. And, I mean, it's, it, it does, and this is, sort of speaks to the consumer-generated part and to once you open these doors, you, you kind of have to be ready for them to be open and you don't know what's going to happen. And we even felt the effects of it. The, okay. I mean, uh, taking it from a different direction, I mean, the, the core challenge is the same challenge it always is in writing. You know, you go back to uh, Jonathan Swift and Gulliver's Travels, which is a wonderful, charming little children's story and a lot of fun and is a parody of the English political parties or something at the time. Uh, there's a professor in the room who knows more about it than, <laughs> than I do, I'm sure. A tradition that continued to... Uh, Europe's most successful comic strip, Asterisk the Gaul, um, which is layered in puns that have to work in translation into 16 different <laughs> languages, but also each individual one tends to have something to do with the French political scenes and European scenes that I can sort of puzzle out about 10% of, but I'm a great fan of the strip because just on a surface, you're a moron walking through. It's a lot of fun, and they're good characters, and they work with it. Um, there are different tools for this as writers. You know, how you use what comics rules for it descend from the pulp world of the old pulps. Every time Doc Savage showed up, you stopped the story to have the same one paragraph about the bronze skin and all the wonderful things he could do, and same for each of the five guys he had working for him. Hopefully, you can do it more subtly than that. Um, but you want to create a story so that as much as humanly possible, anyone can come in anywhere and at least make enough sense out of it to say, boy, this is interesting, um, and then want to go back and maybe they stop watching at that point. They say this is particularly in the world we're in now as opposed to the old television model. Um, they watch five minutes of Lost, ten minutes of Lost, say this is cool, but I don't want to watch a whole episode now. I want to go get the DVD of the first season and start it from the beginning. Um, I want to do the iTunes download or whatever the case may be. You now have the flexibility to do that, which also makes it in many ways easier to have greater complexity because the complexity is to some extent balanced by the ease of access. Uh, it's kind of like going in the bookstore and randomly opening the book to a page to read a page to see if you want to buy it, but then you don't randomly read through the rest of the book. You make a decision that you're going to start from the beginning. You can now do that with these things, and that, that permits you to raise the level in a way that you couldn't. Same thing for comics with the trade paperback editions and the easier access or even the existence of internet sites, user-generated or company-generated that provide you information that before you would have really had to have searched out. Yeah, the, I, I think the, the, the primary thing to, is, as you both said, is, is that each channel kind of has to stand by itself. You have to be able to enter it, enjoy it, appreciate it, say it's interesting, and have that be it, if that's all you're going to do. But if you are moving across these channels, there has to be a layering and a reason for the compliments, like why you are in those other channels. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, it's ridiculous. You're just recycling and repurposing content and not, not, not doing what the media should be doing organically in terms of making that 
a richer experience from, from the viewer's perspective or the audience's perspective. So I went to um, Comic-Con and was thrilled. I was so excited. I waited in line for this exclusive limited edition comic that they were handing out. And I was so bummed after I got it because the first, the first kind of segment of it is it's a recycle of what I had just seen what I had seen in May and what I had just seen at the conference, and I was really crap. And then, then I got to the back, and I saw some new stuff about Claire, because it's got, like, too many episodes in there, and, and Claire in her unbreakable kind of um, mode, and I thought that was really cool. So then, as the season starts and these graphic novels, um, you know, everybody loves Hero, like H-I-R-O, and there's this episode where he's trying to do this first kind of time travel thing. And, and then you go the, that week to, um, to see the, uh, the comic, and you learn, it's, it's just a, it, like eight pages, but you learn that part of the reason that he is who he is is that he, his grandfather died at Hiroshima, right? A very tiny piece of information, like almost inconsequential in the world. It's a post-it on some writer's book, right, in terms of who creating this character. But you now have a, a completely different sense of this character in the world of heroes and what he saw out the window when he saw that explosion. And so, but it hasn't taken away from the guy who's just going to watch it Monday mm-hmm. nights at, at 8 or 9 or download it, but now it's like, oh, my God. You know, mm-hmm. I, I now, this, this character has a, a, another layer of sympathy here. So um, it's, it's a matter of how you use these in relation to each other and having them be consumable and standalone in their own space. Okay, we've, we've got a bunch of mics out here with questions. Let's, let's start there. Um, I'm Lynn Ricardo, and I'm a playwright, and I am also one of the Much rich irony here, and 
I'm not entirely clear how it fits into transmedia because as Alex pointed out, there's just such a huge volume of story and a volume of backstory. How do you put it into a place where people can access it, plus all the guild um, issues that go along with it? So, uh, but it just strikes me as continually ironic that the medium that actually started complexity, well, Dickens maybe, but in terms of broadcast, yeah. uh, still doesn't really get recognized when you, when you look back at, at the history of where it starts, because complexity doesn't start with Roots, and it didn't start with Hill Street. I apologize for not mentioning it. We certainly acknowledge soap opera as our root in the comic books that adapt that style. The distinction I was making with Roots and Hill Street is basically the breaking out of the ghetto. I think I think both soap opera and comics, and probably there are probably there are other segments that I could think of if I worked at it for a few minutes that exhibited that behavior previously, but they were ghettoized by the people who didn't participate in them. Whereas those were sort of the first examples moving into the mainstream, into prime time, but also into um, a, an assumption that it was for an audience that previously would have rejected it using the term soap opera as a pejorative, in the same way that something being a comic book derived creative idea was an enormous pejorative that you would have, a, if you were doing a William Sapphire column, you'd have a hard time looking up a use of it in description of a movie or a TV show prior to about two, three years ago where it wasn't a negative pejorative. Now suddenly, you can find both. Um, you know, Hero is a good comic. Heroes is a good comic book thing. You still find a lot of writers. That was, one of the most interesting moments of that was the day Will Eisner's Obit, one of the great comic book creators, uh, ran in the New York Times arts section, which was an amazing thing in and of itself. The front page article on some other, some completely unrelated to comics piece. Uh, made the remark that it's sort of all the rage now to talk about graphic novels as though they were literature. <laughs> you know, I'm going to argue against the conventional wisdom that they are. And I just thought Will would have been smiling enormously that all of a sudden the <laughs> conventional wisdom was in his favor or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the day, the day that his obit ran. Um, well, this was the day after he died, so, but he was looking down on it, a happy man. He, he knew we had won on that one as well. But yes, certainly the soap opera is there. Over here. Uh, hi, I'm Jesse Walker from Reason Magazine. It, it seems to me that um, what you're discussing is uh, sort of three different things as transmedia. Uh, and I wondered if you could address sort of the boundaries between them and how they affect each other. One is just adaptations of stories from one genre to, or, or rather, from one medium to another, or one style to another. You know, The Wizard of Oz is a book and then a play, or it's uh, The Wizard of Oz and then it's The Wiz. Um, but it's different ways of telling the same story. Another is adventures in different media, and there's no really attempt to keep them consistent. You know, uh, Superman in the comic strip was married for a while. You know, and that's, uh, and then maybe fans come along and try to make them consistent, but that's a, a different story. Mm -hmm. And then there's these adventures across different platforms where there's an attempt to build a consistent universe. And there's obviously gray areas between all of these, and there's odd, also uh, add-ons like games, where they fit. It could be part of this larger universe, but obviously every gameplay does not exist as a consistent story within it. 
Um, but where do you see these affecting each other? Where do you see yourselves on the spectrum? It's mostly towards the third option, I think, but maybe not entirely. I, I'm, I, I'm working on a project right now with uh, Sarah Smith, who's in the audience. She, uh, she wrote a novel a couple years ago called Chasing Shakespeare's. And it's a historical fiction, uh, you know, kind of not unlike uh, the Da Vinci Code or something like uh, Catherine Neville's The Eight. Um, but it's really, it, it's a debate about um, the authorship. It's the, the authorship question relative to the mm -hmm. Earl of Oxford, the Earl of Stratford. And as I read the book, I said, it, it's so complex because you need to picture who these Elizabethan characters are, what the artifacts are, what the plays were, the illusions that went back to Shakespeare. And as I read it, I said, this is a play. Like, I read it as a novel, and I had the audacity to ask her, could we make it a play? <laughs> and, um, and she agreed. And part of the exercise in making it a play, when we went through our scene structure and, and kind of the arc, um, she, even as the creator, was very willing to kill off a character and just say, the character is no longer. And I, like, it violated my rule as a creator <laughs> in terms of moving something from the, the primary document into this alternative media space. And I was freaking out. And so then, um, and, and you know, lines that, maxims that were given by one character suddenly were coming out of the voices, out of the mouths of other characters. And I was like, okay, this is, we got the spirit, the essence. So at the end of the day, I reconciled it by saying, we have the essence of the argument, the essence of the major characters, but the circumstances in certain instances have changed. So it's, we, you know, kind of worked it that way so that there's a, a bit of a negotiation as you move from one to the next, and Henry um, does a, a workshop here each, each January during the IAP for students called uh, tran uh, Interactive Storytelling in a, or Transmedia Storytelling in an Interactive Age, where he brings in a variety of, of folks to talk about character, talk about world, talk about setting, music, aesthetic, across the different channels in terms of how you reconcile as you move from a comic book or a novel into film, into um, you know, into the, the various media that you're, you're adapting this space to ultimately end up suggesting the creation of a world or having a consistent world, but that you, you, you key in on what the key attributes are that make that property in its primary or its initial state so engaging, um, which is why it has some wonderful lectures about Bond moving across time and, and different eras. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Lord of the Rings one is a great one in terms of where the, the, the primary is the world and then the characters. So it's, um, it's an interesting tension as you, you kind of go through this, this, this movement. I think the answer to your question is it's all of the above. And it really, on some level, you're reduced to it has to capture the sincere essence of the work. And we know that when we see it as creative people, and we know that when we see it as consumers of entertainment. And everybody's judgment is not the same, but there is sort of a collective judgment on it. The one person who is the least likely to stand outside the creative judgment is the original creator. <laughs> um, and that's, that's a big piece of the challenge because you have the phenomenon that the original creator often is the person with the greatest regret about the transmedia applications. We're seeing a lot of write-up right now 
in New York, at least, with the opening of Mary Poppins this week, reminding us that P.L. Travers really thought the movie sucked. <laughs> um, and the only reason she gave Cameron McIntosh the rights to, to do the play was because he promised it wouldn't be based on the Disney version. And then after she passed away, he and Disney needed to marry their rights together in order to make the play. So it is a synthesis that moves a little bit away from the movie, but not back to Travers' work. Um, it's a very hard balance. When you originally create something, often you have a vision that, while it doesn't encompass the detail of how it can move through all these media, you have your own innate compass of what rightness is. And then what everybody else is doing is nothing less than rape to you. Um, some creators don't have that problem and don't have that issue. In comics, the, the essential reference point I use for it is it's really the Charlie Schultz versus Jim Davis dialogue. Um, <laughs> you know, Schultz was determined to do every page of Peanuts himself. If he could have, he would have drawn every cell of the animated material himself. He, he let the animation be done because he had great faith and trust in Bill Melendez as a creative partner that they could work closely together and they did some brilliant work together. Um, and he wanted the strip to die with him. Um, it, it was his story. He was Charlie Brown. Who the hell is somebody else to come up with what Charlie Brown could do? Very nice man. He would never express it that bluntly. Um, but it was his. And Jim Davis, who, who created Garfield, um, as the property grew successful, took a cornfield in Iowa, turned it into a factory for creativity, and built out office upon office for guys to do the transmedia of Garfield in every mm -hmm. form and fashion, because he really welcomed different people's points of view. We can argue about which one is art. Both can be, I think, potentially. Um, but you, there is no answer to your question that spans everything. I think it is each project in and of itself largely dependent on the combination of the creator's initial wishes, the guilds, and the contracts that string it together, and the economic motivation of the people who are in control of it, which may or may not be the creator. Sometimes it's a very happy process. Sometimes it's a very unhappy one. OK, over there. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Ron Miners. I'm with um, Multiverse, which is a platform for MMO creation. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the sort of initial vectors of interest in our platform was from Hollywood. And James Cameron is actually even on our board of directors. Um, so, there's, uh, so there's a lot of interest on our part in sort of the, some of this transmedia stuff. And uh, so that's the comment. The question and questions um, are more uh, uh, along the lines of, uh, and some of this you've kind of touched on already, but uh, have you seen um, uh, cross applications or, or, or new creative sort of manifestations that revitalized the property? I mean, was, was this, is, is this something that you sometimes see feed back into the original property and, and, and kind of breathe new life into it, or perhaps new interest? And uh, similarly, the, the second question, again, you sort of touched on this a little bit with the, the story of Lost and the, I guess, the big spaceship one, is that right, <laughs> uh, story. Um, what, uh, how do you see, what have you seen and how do you see the evolution of participatory or fan culture taking part in, in these transmedia sort of uh, creations and, and uh, 
I don't know, uh, how, do you, how do you see that evolving? I mean, it certainly seems like something that's kind of been talked around at least a little bit today. So I was curious what your thoughts were. Well, I think the fan, uh, the fan participation has been there for a really long time. Um, you know, I mean, this is something Henry talks about. Um, you know, and we've all heard about the you know, homoerotic Star Trek Kirk and Spock stories that people have written, and and you know, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of this out there. It's it's I think now becoming more centralized in a sense, that it, or or the potential for it to be centralized and become part of a brand rather than an offshoot is is starting to happen, and that's, I guess, um, you know, a little bit of a double-edged sword because it commercializes it and it sort of puts fans to work without compensating them for their work, but then also <laughs> they're very happy to do that work in many cases. I mean. I read a statistic, I'm not going to remember the actual number of what uh, Linden Labs would have paid if they had hired programmers to create the Second Life world versus giving people the tools to create it themselves, and it was in the billions or thereabouts. So, you know, as long as people are getting some benefit out of it, I don't feel that bad about that particular issue. I, I see what I'd like to see, because ultimately I think of what we do at Big Spaceship as um, as kind of fan-created art, we just get paid to do it at a high level. But we're, <laughs> um, you know, I hope that there's more and more of it. I hope that the tools get simpler and simpler and more transparent between mediums, which I know is, is something that's happening now as everything turns into ones and zeros. Um, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly excited and, and, and see a lot of promise on a, just a technical level. Uh, from some of the things, some of the advances that have, have been announced um, for web technology that kind of pull it out of the browser and allow it to stand alone and sort of widgetizing the function of the web and so that you can really create things that, you know, the browser is sort of a, a lousy um, frame to have to look at all your content in because it's not malleable and, uh, and it, it's a middleman. It's sort of like the, it's the equivalent to me of the, of the CD, you know, that if you had gone straight from vinyl records to downloaded iTunes, you wouldn't have missed anything. Like, it was just there because it had to be for a time. And I sort of feel like the browser's the exact same thing. And so this doesn't, it's, this is a bit of a tangent, but that, that the things that people do on their computers um, get sort of easier to, uh, to distribute, easier to play, easier to network between each other, easier to, to, to collaborate together inside of a sort of hopefully open system. You know, that, that yeah, something not lost now, but whatever lost might be five years from now, that there, that there are actually tools that have been created for the, the show for the fans of the show to make things. So they're, they're letting it open up. They're, they're not trying to overly confine what's said about it. Um, but they are giving a certain type of control, a certain interface of control over it to kind of guide it towards being true to the, true to the source material. In terms of the revitalization question, I mean, certainly if you look at the long arcs of some properties like ours, the completely different aesthetic approach brought by the Batman TV show in the 1960s uh, took a property that had, had continuous economic value for the previous 28 years, but no peaks, um, and brought it to an astounding level, um, burned it out real fast in a three, four year period because <laughs> it was a kind of a one note joke fad, but very, very profitable during that time. And in the same fashion, it's very hard to pinpoint 
the fathers of success of the next arc of Batman uh, in the 80s, but certainly you've got a piece of it coming off Frank Miller's work on The Dark Knight and Alan Moore's on The Killing Joke and coming together, and Tim Burton, who synthesized some things from there, some things from Batman before, and really, in, in that sense, it's transmedia in that it is a compilation of different creative effects, in that case, on the most impactful. But at the same time, we had a phenomenon going before Tim's movie even hit with the, just the Batman t-shirts mm -hmm. and the simple iconography of the black t-shirt with the logo at that point for a period of about six months was a phenomenon first in the UK and then in the US where there wasn't even enough black um, silk, avail black cotton available to make as many t-shirts as were saleable. So, you know, the, all ends of the circle can feed it. When it's really working, you don't know who did it. And that's the best case possible, actually. Um, okay, down here. I was wondering if you could talk about um, stakes in terms of how that affects uh, transmedia. Because I think that you have, when you build a huge world like soap opera or comics, you can incorporate a number of creators, and so you can create, you can have mistakes, you can have plot holes, oh. you, um, and then you can crisis of infinite earths it back together later if you need to. Um, and you talking can, about my mistakes? No, one's, mista okay. one's mistakes. Um, Just checking. Um, and, um, but you can do that when you have a committed <laughs> fandom because, you know, the whole reason Marvel started giving no prizes is because it was just like, the fans want there to be a reason. So if you come up with a reason, then they'll put it back together for you. Um, so I wonder if the real, the problem with holes in transmedia is when you blow it up to a, a huge national audience. What do you think about that? Uh, no. Um, short answer. <laughs> Uh, I don't think the problem is the scale of the audience. I think the problem is the insincere mistake. Mm -hmm. the, the diff mistakes come in two orders. The audience <laughs> is extraordinarily forgiving of a sincere mistake. I've written a few very stupid stories. Most writers have. I, I, for a long time, I wrote a book that was largely where I got my reputation called The Legion of Superheroes, which was about teenage superheroes in the 30th century. And they were called dumb names like Cosmic Boy and Lightning Lad that were already out of date 25 years ago. So I decided to fix this by explaining that, you know, a thousand years ago we thought somebody was a grown up at 13. Then society invented this concept of adolescence. Mm -hmm. And you didn't become a man or a woman until you were, depending on who measured it, 18 or 21 or whichever way society was counting it. What if a thousand years from now you're not a grown up till you're 40? because you're going to live to be 150. <laughs> so this is an issue of Legion that if you try really hard, you can find. It's so damn stupid, we forgot about it the next morning. <laughs> and we never mentioned it again. <laughs> but because it felt sincere to the audience, it just went on a list of stupid stories that we're never going to talk about again, like an old friend of mine who wrote the one that it was really the Kryptonian glass in Clark Kent's glasses that was why Lois Lane didn't recognize it. <laughs> I'm not telling you his name. He's still embarrassed by it 30 years later. Um, 
the audience is very forgiving of this sort of stuff. It is not very forgiving of mistake that says, didn't the moron read anything that ever happened before? Didn't he watch the show? Doesn't he know anything about it? Doesn't he get it? That's the stuff that damages it. That's the stuff that leaks from the transmedia back to the media itself and says, you don't care enough to respect us. Um, Star Trek was starting to have that problem in the 1970s when they weren't bothering to match some of the material they were doing in the novelizations to the material they were doing on television. And it was starting to inflict some damage. And then they started to work harder at it. And they recovered. They band-aided out past it. But it's, it's not really the size of the stage. It's the, it's the insincerity or obvious sloppiness that creates the damage. Right, it's the mistake in casting, perceived mistake in casting uh, Michael Keaton as Batman versus with Burton versus Schumacher's hard rubber nipples on the costume three yeah. you know in the next mm -hmm. you kill it it's dead so yeah. that's the unforgivable one yeah and Joel's actually was fairly sincere to his vision of what he thought <laughs> comics were but he wasn't getting what the mass audience felt the vision of the character was so it's not even it's not even whether it's true sincerity at the heart of it it's whether it's group sincerity you know, are, you, are, are you assimilating? Are you grokking? Are you part of the board? Do you get what we all think is going on here? Um, if you do, then you're a sincere member of the group, even if you made a mistake. And we'll just, you'll just earn your no prize, and that's fine. Actually, that's actually a really good point to the revitalization question as well. Is like, you, know, you have these long arcs, right, where you've got Superman in multiple episodes. And the thing in the last few years has been the becoming story, right? You got the becoming story of Spider-Man. Then Warner Brothers looks at the, the Batman, how can we fix this? Oh, that's the becoming story, right? Heroes, the becoming story. Um, even the James Bond that opened this weekend, the becoming story. Mm -hmm. So it's, right. like, it's like you can now go back and kind of reset the clock um, to, to kind of reimagine re these worlds, um, you know, it, it, which is in essence wicked. So. Mm -hmm. I'd argue, I'd argue Wicked isn't quite that, because Wicked is an under-reveal, mm -hmm. um, which is a term that, that we use. It's consistent with everything you knew before, but it's the thing you didn't know that fits with it. Okay. You know, I don't know where you, where you did your undergraduate work, um, but the odds are I'm not going to find out that your undergraduate work was in um, something that, that fits not at all to what, you, what parts of your life I know. The turning back the clock phenomenon is a different one because you're literally changing facts. Okay. You're saying that you know, what the Nicholson movie version, the Tim Burton and Jack Nicholson turning out to be the killer of Batman's parents. No, the killer of Batman's parents doesn't end up being the Joker. We're sorry, that, that was that one, that was that version. That was sincere, that was okay because he got the spirit of it, but it just doesn't count anymore. Um, and Chris has gone back to the older original comic book mythos, more literally, mm -hmm. and said, no, it's Joe Chill, and here's, here's, ha here's how it happens in this fashion. So, so build on that vocabulary for a minute. Where, how do Elseworlds fit into this? The idea that you're saying, this is the established <laughs> characters, but we're going to transform them and create a parallel universe, a universe different from that. Uh, is that a different strategy of transmedia, and why don't we see it more broadly? Than just at DC Comics or or Marvel with what if? I think you see it. I think you see it in other places as well. It's. I think you'll see it more as sort of the 
geek logic we share um, permeates the general culture in a different fashion. Um, I think it's except it, you see it in science fiction in the alternate history stories, which has now penetrated beyond science fiction to be things like, you know, what if Lincoln survived? How would Reconstruction have worked out? Suddenly becomes an acceptable short story or, or historical novel, whereas before the historians would be looking at it and sort of saying, you know, what kind of maniacs are doing this? Um, so our, our cultural ethos is leaking out. Um, what, it's, what it says, and I, I don't know the popular culture history enough here to know where it started, is to say you know this story. What if a little piece of the story flipped? What is the inflection moment that we can play with? And if you get, if you get the, again, the sincere story right, you used... You indicated in your opening, Henry, you were a Red Sun fan, Mark's Superman being brought up in Russia story. If it feels right, if it feels like you understand the architecture that underlies it, and it is a loving homage that just departs at a certain point and legitimately speculates, I think it's fine. The problem is that the creative people and the consumer base can't articulate very well to the non-creative community where that line is. I've sat there in development processes for our films or TV shows where wonderfully talented and dedicated creative people were proposing to put their heads in a pencil sharpener um, and had the conversation that says, you can't change that piece. And I've tried to explain it in business logic in creative neutral terms, how much you can screw with this property in this way. Well, ultimately there really isn't, or at least I have not yet found, a great objective language for this. I can explain that as a Lord of the Rings fan, I could forgive they're not doing Tom Bombadil because it was 20 minutes in and I had already seen that they got it. And by that point, all right, it's a cheat. I'd really like to see that scene, but I understand you got to give up something to get the overall benefit. So I have one objective answer to be able to say, don't screw with it in the first five minutes of your film, um, <laughs> which came up fairly energetically in some discussions a couple of years ago. Um, but I haven't been able to put this together into a holistic theory that says, here's what you can do and what you can't. Well, it's just got to be right. Is, I, oh. I think I think, I think it's interesting that, that the conversation's actually going this way because um, I was hoping to comment on some of this stuff. By the way, my name is Lee Hillman, otherwise known as Gwendolyn Grace. I'm from fictionalley.org, which is a Harry Potter site. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, um, I like, I'm glad that we're talking a little bit about the origin stories and also the else worlds. I was going to po point that out uh, because I think in the comic book medium, you have sort of a ready-made... Um, openness among the fan base to, to uh, accept these different interpretations. I mean, you mentioned Frank Miller and Alan Moore. The minute that you change an artist or you change an author or you, or you go into a different interpretation, you know that you're going to get a different visual representation of the, the character or the, the whatever. A, a Chris Bachelot vertigo artwork is not the same as a Jill Thompson vertigo artwork, even though they may be drawing the same character. So um, 
you know, I think, I think in comic books, with comic book characters and with some of these other mythoses, we, there's sort of a, a natural progression that every time we reinvent Superman, for example, we also use it to reach a slightly different demographic. Uh, George Reeves versus Christopher Reeve versus Dean Cain. They're all hunky, but they're all different Clark Kents. They're all different interpretations of that, that situation, and they're kind of updated for whatever it is that they're, they're representing. So I guess to get, bring that to my question, um, you know, when you're talking about visual interpretations, especially if you're talking about visual interpretations into different media, if you're using a static media like a graphic novel or um, a comic book or even an entirely invented medium such as the Lord of the Rings novels, um, I, for, for example, knew that they got it when my father went to see them and loved it because he had actually never allowed me to watch <laughs> any of the Rankin-Bass ones when I was a kid because he didn't want me to have any interpretation other than my imaginative response to the books. And he loved them, so I knew we were there. But how do you deal with the, the people who are the visual purists, sort of who are like, you know, you can't possibly do it any other way than this way and I will reject your reality if, if you try to impose it on me. And out of that, how do you respond to the interactivity of fans and the growing sort of examples of these shows that are sort of self-consciously self-reflexive, knowing that their fan bases are out there, knowing that their fans get on the message boards every night, and did you hear such and such a line, and did you know that, you know, or this connects to this and this connects to that? And there's shows that sort of play with that, that fan base without, at the same time, uh, alienating the ones that, that don't want to go sort of where the story may or may not be going. I mean, how do, how do you talk about balancing sort of where some fan bases want you to go versus where others may not, if that makes sense? Well, I'll try the first half, and then I'll pass the second half of the question on. Cowardly. I know. <laughs> um, the first half, I think comics, as I think I alluded before, are in a uniquely good position for the visual dimension. McLuhan makes an argument that I can't reproduce exactly from memory, but that reduced itself to the more the reader or the viewer has to fill in the blanks in their own imagination, the more flexible they're likely to be in the interpretations that follow. And the primitivism of comics in that fashion, I think, puts us in a uniquely good position for that. It's still a challenge when you know, Brian Singer comes in and says, I want to change the colors of the costume because these will film better for the filming method I'm doing. And I'm going to still red and blue, but I'm going to enrich the red a little bit. And I'm going to shift the blue a little bit. You sort of sit back and say, OK. Um, <laughs> I know he gets the character. I know he gets the property. I know he connects to the fan world. He's got a great visual imagination, as has been evidenced, and a great visual ability to interpret properties, is he right? Um, and you make a gut assumption in your own head whether you think this one is one that you're going to get lynched for, um, or whether this is one that's going to work in the final. And then when it finally goes up on the screen, and you show it to 3,000 people at a San Diego con a couple of years later, um, and they burst out applauding. 
<laughs> um, and I don't know if Brian goes who. I mean, he may have seen it dead perfectly centered in his head the whole time. That's part of why being a director on projects like this requires a kind of incredible creative courage and creative leap of faith. You have to believe in your own compass that you can attach to this audience. And when you're Brian Singer or you're Chris Nolan or you're Tim Burton, and, or Tim Burton, I mean, God, they were afraid to call us and tell us about Michael Keaton. <laughs> um, you know, Bob, Bob Daly himself, who was the chairman of Warner Brothers, made the call to Jeanette to, to tell her, you're not going to like this, but... <laughs> um, and Tim was absolutely right. Um, and the, the really great directors know how to screw with the paradigm of these things enough to pull these things off. And you really have to have awe of how well they do it in those situations. Um, we start from a relatively easier place, I think, than some other media for that transformation. Probably in prose, obviously, where you don't have a visual representation. I don't, you know, the, the, the cover illustration of a book doesn't usually concretize it in a fashion enough that people feel like they, they can lynch the wrong interpretation that comes from it. Again, as long as it's consistent with what the author writes about the character and sort of the visual that you conjure in your head. Gandalf's hat didn't really need to be blue. That didn't stick enough in enough of our minds that we were ready to get in an uproar about it. Bluish-gray sort of made sense. Um, um, there's, a, there's, an, there's two uh, interesting examples uh, in, in what's happening right now in theater um, in New York. There's a, the, 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 if, you, if you look at the fan boards in theater in New York, the, the number of people who comment on Wicked on a daily basis is unbelievable because there are now so many companies in Los Angeles, Chicago, New York. Who's the definitive Glinda, Galinda? Who's the definitive Alphaba? And it's, it's unbelievable the, that just within the space of something that is relatively fixed in these different spaces, there, there are conversations about people who are seeing them in multiple locations wow. and who's really true to it. So that's one. The second one is a little bit more problematic because it goes to intellectual property. And it's, uh, it's something that, tiny little blip that appeared in the New York Times on Wednesday on Urinetown. Is anyone familiar with what's happening with Urinetown? Mm -hmm. So Urinetown um, is this, it, it, it originated in the Fringe Festival in New York a few years ago. And um, the creators, it's a pastiche piece. It's, it's, it's tongue-in-cheek. And um, it, it pokes fun at, at the whole musical theater genre. And when it was staged in workshop and moved to off-Broadway and then into Broadway, there was kind of a, a staging and a choreography and a blocking and a creative approach that was applied to this. Now, when you see Urinetown, it's really, honestly, you look at it, one would argue there could be many ways, but really there's only one way to, to, to make this show <laughs> in, in certain respects. Well, what's happened is in regional theaters, cast members have been hired to direct it, right? So it is now looking like cookie cutter. It's an imprint of what was originally conceived in New York, which one might argue is an audience expectation uh -huh. that it should be as it was in New York, but the rights issues don't exist. The, the rights clearances and the rights assignments don't exist for that to happen because they're not being credited, the, the original creators, they're not being compensated for it. And the new creators, the new creators, 
which have made it look very much like it. Some would argue 90%, which is what the creators have argued in their papers that they filed. Um, they've won awards for it. So a woman who was in the, the original cast has recreated it almost to 90%, and she won, they won several awards in the Chicago theater community. But, but so the fans want to see that. The expectation is they want to see that, but there's no mechanism for it from the, the rights assignment piece. So it's, it's a really interesting, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the most talked about things right now in, in this oh. theater community space. Ironically, we're talking about, because it comes in the age of the Xerox musical, right? We've got a chorus line right out of 1975. We've got um, Les Miserables right out of 1986. And now we've got you know, these things where it's not just digital media that, that is propagating and recycling. We've got, as Ben Brantley writes in the Times, Xerox musicals now. So I just think it's, it's, it's yeah. I, looking at those expectations on like what's acceptable and what's not from individual performances to actual shows. Down here. My name, is, my name is Jeffrey Long, and I'm a CMS grad student that's actually writing my thesis on transmedia storytelling, so I apologize if this is too esoteric. Um, we're seeing a shift um, towards hard transmediation as opposed to soft transmediation. Um, if you think of something where an original property makes a whole lot of money, and then um, they, uh, the executives decide, well, that made a lot of money. Let's go make some, uh, some money in a different media. That's kind of a soft thing because it was thought of after the success of the original property um, versus what the Wachowski brothers did with the second uh, and third Matrix movies and the Enter the Matrix game, which were designed as transmedia from the start, which I'm, I kind of think of as hard transmedia since that was you know, set in stone as the plan. Um, if you move this line of progression out about five years, 10 years, whatever, and start thinking about alternative distribution methods so that the property is thought of not as a TV show with all these little bits hung on the sides, but as the entire property as you know, one cohesive entity. Um, what do you see as some possible distribution methods and you know, sort of the, the strengths and the weaknesses of some concepts like a subscription model or a big box set like you would see with um, like the King Kong mega edition that has everything you know, all collected together? Well, I like the idea of subscription content in that sense. I mean, that's that's great. I would love to subscribe to to you know worlds that I appreciate and have the content delivered to me by RSS feed or whatever replaces RSS feed. I mean, I think that's that's a really fascinating you know potential future. It kind of depends on um, you know some of the stuff that we were uh, that we've been talking about over the last you know all day basically is uh, you know. Can the big broadcasters, if the big broadcasters are who then who they are now, um, can they let go of of a property's association? So can they let go of their own brand? You know, NBC to me is not a brand that holds any interest. Heroes holds a lot of interest. Uh, you know. When I go to network websites, for instance, uh, there's nothing there that's, that's speaking just directly to me. There's, there's something there speaking to just about everybody. And it's not a very focused uh, experience. And I, I think if I could sort of, if I could, you know, have my lost without my desperate housewives right next to it, I mean, even just downloading a wallpaper, you know, I mean, the simplest act of customizing my computer based on my affinity, you know, I have to be looking at, at the 
what is it, Wisteria Lane ladies, even though I don't care at all um, while I'm looking through my, my characters. So I'm, I'm already kind of separated out of the experience because there's this umbrella brand around it. I'm not saying they don't, they don't maintain ownership of it necessarily, but even just in the sort of delivery mechanism, which is what you're talking about, there needs to be a little bit more sort of um, uh, larger understanding of, of that, that each of these individual entertainment brands, if it's going to grow to a point, and that could happen with any number of things, and they try it with lots of things, and some things it succeeds, but, but are they sort of, if, if, if the internet is the place where, where people start, which I think is also a change that needs to happen. Um, you know, people start getting their information there. That is the, the evergreen place that you can get content. You might see a spot. You might run a TV spot that gets, you know, however many carpet bomb, you know, approach version of, of, of things. It brings people back. But, but people go online. They get information. And they want it sort of customized to them. So I'm really interested in heroes. I don't want to go to NBC.com to see heroes. The same way I don't really want to go to sonypictures.com to see uh, Casino Royale. Um, you know, I want bond.com or something like that. And, and I think that's where film is a little bit more successful than, than television, but both have a tremendously long way to go. And I think, you know, and I don't speak to the rights issues and stuff because I, they're usually figured out by the time it comes to me, so I don't have to think about it, thankfully. Um, you know that that might get in the way of that, but that's 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 a future I'd like to see is is one where you know I've sort of got my heroes application that I've subscribed to, and I can choose whatever content comes through that application, and it doesn't necessarily run through a browser; it runs through my single screen. You know, I mean, we're all working towards sort of IPTV, and we t they talked earlier about the Apple device and the competing devices that are going to bring sort of true interactive television, and uh, you know, or there are those applications out there. Um, at the point that that happens, you know, I carry this laptop around. Maybe it's Slingbox, which is working right now. If you travel, you're sending it to yourself. But it's not just video content. It's all the branded content that anybody might have created. One of the things we struggle with is we create this content, and then we actually have to sort of fight to get people to use it in other places where it would be appropriate, you know, where we'll create this excellent uh, ancillary content for a film, but whether it's a game or video sequences that we've put together, whatever it might be. And guess what? You can have it. You already own it. You can use it on your DVD. That's not the way it works here. It's just they won't do it because it's not the business model for doing it. And they're not looking at these properties as this sort of, from a consumer perspective, I guess. And, and that's, that's a big shift that needs to happen in order to sort of achieve that, that model. And this is the this is a first step. So taking on, on, on the point of this is the sh the network wrapper, which means nothing, but what they got right is that they oh, they moved over and they they have this site that's that's really for the people who just want yes. heroes, right? So you got the the whole kind of comic feel to it, the the countdown in terms of the the episodes and the issue editions here. But this is, this is really the, the quote-unquote fan site. This was launched uh, around Comic-Con. But it's, to your point, this is now my channel for heroes. You know, to hell with this. I now can go right here because when you dig down, the same content, gallery, bada-boom, and gallery, right? You got different types of things that are happening here in terms of what's, what's um, present, but it's, it's all... Very, very similar, but with different wrappers. So yep. 
you start moving into his domain this way, and you're now a subscriber to Ninth Wonders instead of the NBC wrapper. I think there's two pieces to the question, and one of sort of the when and the what. And I think the, the what, the how of the distribution is, is subsumed in all the questions that we've been hearing earlier on about portals. Um, if you're going to simply get piped it, whether it's by a subscription model or because you go to Google or Yahoo and they tell you all of what is cool or you search the term, it can be anywhere in between. I think what will determine when it happens and sort of how the pieces fit together is as the first creative people get it and want to take possession of it. What's going to drive the increased scope of this kind of hard transmedia in the same way that the Wachowskis drove what you're talking about on Matrix is a creative person who is sitting there saying from day one when he goes in and pitches the property, this is going to be cool because it's got eight pieces and I got them all in my head and we're going to do all eight of them and I figured out how it's all going to fit together. And they're going to be such a strong creative person in terms of their track record or in terms of their ability to just simply sell their fresh vision that the financial backers and the marketers will follow in terms of it. And the guild problems, which are very real, but are proportionately more real in soft transmedia than they are in hard transmedia, will fall like dominoes because the guy who's got the greatest stake in it will be going in and saying, and I will take the role necessary in this other part to solve the guild problem, or I will give up from my stake to solve the guild problem. And that will be the driver that will push it through. Um, it really, in my view, is likely to come from the creative center. Back here. Uh, hi, uh, my name's Rob. I'm with the Reputation Institute. Um, my question is more in terms of transmedia uh, in a, in a nonfiction uh, type of space. So my question would be around, well, is there a good way to, to actually approach it um, from the perspective of, of an issue or a, or a country or a, or a company or a brand? Is it, is it credible? Is it fair to... I mean, obviously, storytelling is an incredibly powerful way of moving a message, especially if it's done in an authentic, credible fashion. Um, have you seen good examples of how it's been done in, in a nonfiction way, whether it's around an issue or around a company? Um, and what do you see the, the future of transmedia and nonfiction being? Well, Betsy touched on it this morning. It was in the panel in terms of uh, what the 630 broadcast is on CBS relative to analysis. Right, and in the back, so some additional layers and some things that you wouldn't get through RSS feeds off of you know, the AP, Reuters, New York Times, et cetera. So it's a slightly different proposition in that space versus how you'd explore an issue or do multiple links off a, a main story if it's a, a BBC or if it's a, a regular, you know, a, a, an individual's blog that's aggregated links on a story. Um, it's, a, it's the combination, I think, of, of how you you optimize or you think about what people want within each of those channels. The web, constantly refresh. I constantly want to know what's happening at any given moment, right? Whereas some of these other spaces, whether it's the 6.30 or the morning show or the, um, 
or a documentary or a frontline. It's more of an in-depth, and it's, it's kind of pulling those things together um, in a way that you can't, that, that, that's, that's not the, the immediate kind of constantly knowing what's happening. So as, as a consumer, you're layering and you're trying to create understanding um, in real time across multiple sites if a story breaks so that you, you look at the times or you look at whatever domestic sources you were looking at. And then if you were, you know, if you really wanted to understand what, what was, how the world was viewing the elections, you might go to some international sites. Um, so it's really in terms of what the purpose is in, in trying to understand what, what the issue is, really, and, getting, and going to places where you can get the multiple perspectives or the alternative perspectives to kind of layer in, because you're not going to get that through you know, a network news organization in, in a 90-second in a spot or segment. Um, so it's, I'm sorry, I'm just going to jump in there. And rather than kind of one place where you're getting multiple pieces of information, I'm, I'm more thinking around um, one place that's very much focused on, on one thing. Like, you know, for example, I mean, you guys are talking a lot about, for example, Batman or Superman. I'd be thinking around, you know, a specific brand, a specific person, a specific issue, whether it's global warming or something like that. Global so, warming is a perfect example. Yeah. If you look at, at climate crisis, the site, and uh, an inconvenient truth, you have two, I mean, clearly related by theme and related by subject matter, but uh, two really different information sources and different um, sort of uh, mediums for telling that story. Um, you know, one's basically a filmed PowerPoint presentation done really, really well, which is one medium, and another is is uh, you know a way of of digging deep into information and uh, you know hopefully getting sort of a larger piece of the picture. One, I guess, one's more of a call to action, and one's more of a, a supplementary information. My name is Sam Ford, and I am a media analyst here and a graduate student at MIT and C3. Uh, as I came here from J School, so I was interested in the previous question, uh, particularly because uh, I think some journalists still don't really get the idea of transmedia. Uh, we had a journalist here a couple months ago uh, who uh, was really trying to be innovative in the field, but her idea of transmedia was she said, well, we've installed a camera in our newsroom. <laughs> and. Uh, that, you know, our question was, well, why? Because if it, it, a couple of people have written some very good pieces about sort of primers on transmedia in the news, and the key is you don't enter a new medium unless you're telling a story that is particularly able to be told in that media form. The idea is to play to the strengths of each media, and I think that works equally as well in news as it does in entertainment, but I was interested in some branches, and you all have touched on this a little bit, between the previous panel and this panel, and that's where transmedia crosses into user-generated content, and uh, particularly when you're talking about ancillary content. Um, one of the, through my research in soap operas, one of the things I have been proposing is how user-generated content could be called upon more often uh, for these shows, because they have these huge narrative universes, yet on the other hand, now you can see where I'm at. Um, yet, yet, on the other hand, um, there is a little bit of a complication in that, uh, you know, a creative team can only do so much. So there's the idea that sometimes how can a creative team become an editor and aggregator for user-generated content? And one idea I had had is for a soap opera, which airs five hours a week 
and you, but yet you have all these characters on the show and then all these other characters that existed in the history of the show that aren't necessarily on the show at that time. For instance, could you la launch an online site that is the Oakdale newspaper and as the world turns, that you have a daily newspaper site that has articles in, in AP format or whatever that is written by the, by the fans and someone with the company then is an editor for that newspaper and decides what content goes in and what doesn't. But you could have all these stories uh, developing. You could have stories about the mayor of the town may not even be on that show in any way, shape, or form, but then you could work references back into that show where people are reading the newspaper and commenting on the scandal in the mayor's office. It seems like it would be a great space to, to meld user-generated content with transmedia. And I'm wondering if any of you have given some thought about how these two uh, phenomena could work together. Painfully. Um, the problem is basically the intersection of the laws. Um, it works from a creative standpoint. You really sort of have a choice of one or two ways of handling this. One is to say, yes, fans, you can give us everything, and we own it the minute you do. Um, and we can make it into a TV episode, and we can make it into a film, and we can make it into anything we want. And by the way, we will never send you any money. Or if we do, it's because we happen to have a good sense of humor that day. <laughs> um, or you can say, I don't want to read what you do. It's not there. It's not happening. Sorry, it's not real. I didn't look at it. Nobody's found a good solution much in between that because... What you, the way the copyright laws are set up and the way the litigation structure of America is set up, once you have given yourself access to the material in a provable fashion, you get past the first hurdle of claim from somebody who had a perfectly obvious idea for the character that you happen to coincidentally be doing in another execution, suing you for copyright infringement. They will lose, um, but they will lose about $100,000 to $200,000 of your legal fees later. Uh, and that's really what kills you. And we get these nuisance suits every couple of years on almost anything that we do. Um, and you really have to build all these barriers to try and knock it out at the first stage rather than before it's a couple hundred thousand dollar problem. If you want to do the user-generated side to something where it is a, an intellectual property owned by somebody, you really have to do these incredibly onerous automatic license agreements for people doing it. And I'm sure you will see people doing, doing that, but it, it is certainly a discouraging thing to a great deal of the creativity that you might otherwise want to bring to the situation. I think your idea is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, not speaking to its viability legally, but uh, I mean, from a marketing side of things, you can probably do something like that. Um, it may not have, uh, you know, as ongoing a lifespan as you want it to have, but it is it is possible, and it is possible to convince the powers that be, at least that I deal with, to do that kind of thing, as long as they have, you know, some sort of control over the potential content, you know, that somebody can't just publish into the world without, you know, some oversight. I mean, Big Spaceship has developed, for instance, one of the most comprehensive lists of profanity in, <laughs> in any form 
so that we can add it into our profanity filter and anything where anybody can type anything. Uh, you know, and, and, and then we customize based on, uh, based on our clients. So when we were working on War of the Worlds, you know, we added to the, the profanity list Tom Cruise and you know, <laughs> other things like that because we don't want anybody messing with Tom. Um, now they might want somebody messing with Tom, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a funny balance from an executional perspective too because you, you want to give people all the, the fun they can have but then there's always a sort of very vocal minority of people who just want to fuck with you and, and, and mess with the brand and, and want to be jokers and, and you know, sort of tear things down as much as possible and that's, that's just a reality that you work within and the reality of opening things up worldwide. So um, you have to build sort of, we try to build these sort of delicate systems where you're imposing only a very limited amount of moderation and you're also building a, a smart enough system that people feel like they're participating a whole lot but you're not really letting them participate in such a strong way that they have an editorial point of view. Uh, those are touchy things, but it, it is possible. That's a really awesome idea. I would love to do that. Um, I think it's neat. What's that? Smallville does it. Smallville does it? Right on. Good for Smallville. In the back, yes. Yeah, greetings. Thank you very much. Really great panel. Um, the one thing that really hasn't been touched on that I'd love to hear from y'all about, including Henry, if you want to drop in on this, is the trans part. So we've talked about multiple media, and we've talked about sharing sort of, let's call it content in multiple media, but we haven't talked about the crossing. And that crossing, I could see perhaps this conversation in real world, whether that's word of mouth, experience marketing, etc., or is it via blogs where you might have writers talking about the creation of, but isn't the content. So what are some thoughts on the trans part that bring this all together? <laughs> I, I said at the beginning, I don't know what it is, so I, I defer to these guys. <laughs> they clearly do. In, in this age of banning trans fats. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in convergence culture, I use the metaphor of the viewer becoming a hunting, hunter and gatherer straddles across these various media platforms and brings together pieces of information. So if you think about the chart I showed at the beginning of the day of uh, the Zion Resistance Underground from The Matrix, uh, that was a composite of information that was created across multiple media by multiple artists contributing, but it ended up being brought together by the consumer. Uh, and that's where collective intelligence seems to me plays a very, why collective intelligence as a concept is closely connected to the idea of transmedia entertainment. That is the ability of people to pool knowledge. No one knows everything. Everybody knows some things. What everyone knows is available to the group. The, these worlds become bigger than anyone can comprehend, whether a creator or a fan, but the ability to have a common space where you dump that knowledge, the sort of Wikipedia model of how we process it seems very good. And getting back to Sam's question, the newspaper seems like a really rich metaphor for thinking about that, right? The newspaper is the way we report on worlds in the real world, mm -hmm. creating a newspaper site that brings together information and development around it. You, you, you did some stuff with 52, right? Oh, yeah. Newspapers. We have a whole fake one. I mean, we've used it. The, the reason I used, again, going back to where I said the painfully, is because we real, the way to make it work is to make the fans surrender everything when they come in. And it, that didn't seem to be the spirit in, that I heard in, 
in what Sam was doing because he was asking the question in terms of can this not inspire more creativity and more directions? And I'm always nervous about areas where you're inspiring creativity and then you're not paying for it. I think but it's sort of you pay now or later. In, in, in sort of goodwill. Yeah. I mean, there, there are fan cultures. That, I mean, when we did the, the, the very first of the pieces of the Lost campaign, we were really fighting with Disney Legal to have no copyright messages on the site, and we lost, of course. Um, but we really wanted it to be, we wanted the verisimilitude. We wanted it to seem like sort of an authentic thing. And what we realized is that it didn't matter. We had goodwill because we were approaching it, as we talked about before, we were approaching mm -hmm. the property with respect and with passion because we were fans. Mm -hmm. And the fact that everybody knew that it was a Disney property and they were being marketed to on some level didn't matter because there was value in the content. And I think I, when we talk about it internally, we talk about goodwill more than anything else. How are we going to establish a, a, a goodwill and a, and a goodwill dialogue with the people that we're creating this for? And, and I think that that can, that can be, on some level, and maybe only from my sort of marketing seat, uh, the currency that you pay in. You know, that we always talk about provide, the value we provide is we, we have to create something that provides a dual value. It provides our clients with a marketing vehicle, but it provides the consumers of what we do with genuine standalone entertainment that doesn't require anything else. If you just want to play our free, Casino Royale game that we built that's very fun. You can just go and play it. You can play it to your heart's content for the next two years. And, and you never have to see Casino Royale at all. And they still paid for you to be able to do that. And I think that can inspire some goodwill right there. It, it goes to, it's a good segue for, it, the, you know, in terms of the, what was brought up this morning, not the number of people you're getting, but the how and the why. So whether it's the, the organic, social, communal, hunter-gatherer exercise of why you're moving across all of these media channels, or if it's designed into the business model that's built around a property in terms of an ad sell, whether it's a Nissan mm -hmm. within the television or on, on the website, there, there are things that will ride alongside whatever the business is that's been set up around that to, to create the trans. 